0: Hello and welcome to Amplify Archaeology podcast. Hello and welcome to Amplify Archaeology and it's a pretty nice day, it's pretty sunny, I'm in probably my favourite place on the planet or at least one of anyway, Uh, I'm in the Burren and I'm here with Michelle Comer and we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, a really interesting series of ongoing excavations at a place called Cahar Connell. But before we get into the story of Cahar Connell, Michelle, could we talk a little bit about the context of the site, both kind of archaeologically and in terms of the kind of the broader landscape? Because as I say, the Burren's definitely one of my favourite places. I absolutely love it. Um, and that's largely because of the wealth of monuments. Even driving over here, you kind of, I went past poole which is, you know one of the most important and iconic kind of prehistoric monuments that we have in the country it seems like there's something from every era around pretty much every corner around here um you know i but in a sense it's kind of odd in a way isn't it because was it a uh, cromwellian general was it ludlow who said it's a country where there's not enough water to drown a man or right. not enough wood to hang one not enough earth to bury one so on first glance a lot of the Burren looks quite bleak and stark with all of the stone, but why is it so archeologically rich?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating landscape in so many different ways, not just Mm archeological, but obviously that's what interests us uh, mostly. Mm -hmm. Um, I suppose there's a number of factors really why it's so fascinating for us as archeologists or as people with an interest in the past. One of the, the, the reasons is the wealth of the farmland here, it's very de- deceptive, uh, kind of in modern terms. As you say, many people come to visit the Burren today and they, si- they see the the bare limestone mountains and it looks very remote um, and desolate, you know, in some weathers. Yeah. But actually, if you look a bit closer, you'll actually find some of the best farmland is in the Burren, even today.
2: Okay.
1: Um, And the reason for this is the actual limestone, Mm. because the limestone retains heat throughout the year. You get grass growth throughout the year, even in the uplands. So for example, here, they practice something called reverse transhumance. In most parts of the world, when the winter comes, you bring the animals down from the uplands. Maybe you even bring them indoors, but here it's the opposite. They bring the animals up in October. Um, And they even have a winterage festival that goes along with that. Um, because there is grass up there for the winter and the animals graze outdoors uh, and are outdoors all winter, so for farmers who are raising you know livestock, this is a brilliant place uh, to be despite appearances yes. um, and the same of course is true in the past. So if we're dealing you know with what is largely a, a kind of a rural society in the Irish past in most of the eras of the Irish past places like this are perfect mm. you know they're ideal for as I say the livestock farming but the Burren also has a you know a number of valleys in mm. the uplands now they have deeper soils and they're perfect for growing your, your crops mm. so if you're a farmer it's a good place to be yes. um, so there, there's that so the farmland and the potential of that farmland attracted a lot of people here in the past so that's the, the first thing. There were a lot of people here. Yeah. And the second thing is, when you look around us, uh, we're surrounded by limestone. Mm-hmm. That was the building material yeah. for the vast majority of the past. Mm-hmm. They built, in prehistory, they built their great uh, ritual monuments of stone. As we progress on in time, uh, into the early medieval period, they build their settlements in stone. So obviously the stone is, you know, very durable and very visible on the landscape. And it's very visible because in the, across the burn, you don't have large scale, modern mechanised farming to destroy okay. it. Mm-hmm. So there was lots of people, they built in stone and that stone is still there. Yes. So we have an archaeological laboratory in the burn. Yeah. Um, we have the potential here to both ask and answer questions. That we might not be able to answer in other parts of of the island of Ireland where we don't have the same level of preservation Mm -hmm. and that level of preservation actually extends right down you know say from the landscape level right down to the object level to the artifact level Mm -hmm. because uh, associated with the limestone we have alkaline soils they're not acidic Mm -hmm. so most of the materials you can think of survive here Mm. obviously your stone glass, metals all survive, Um, and bone, bone survives perfectly uh, in this landscape, animal bone, human bone, the works. The only thing you probably won't find are kind of the soft organics like textiles and and hair and wood, although if you were to find a waterlogged spot you might find some of them uh, as well. So in terms of archaeology it's just an amazing place to be.
0: Uh, absolutely and and it's a pretty beautiful place on top of that as well so you can see why, it, <laughs> why it attracts the likes of us and uh, we're stood here at the moment uh just in the lee of a, a great stone wall that belongs to a beautiful dry stone fort known as caharconnell and could you Tell us a little bit, I suppose, about um, your work here uh, and how long you've been investigating this immediate landscape.
1: Do I have to say how long? <laughs> uh, no, well done. <laughs> no, I suppose. So, yeah. The story actually goes all the way back to when I was doing a PhD back in 2000 oh, okay. and I was studying Ringforts, yeah. these early medieval you know, enclosed settlements that you find across the island of, uh, of Ireland. Um, and it was suggested to me um, that there was great preservation of ring forts here in the burn, the stone version of the ring fort the Cashel or, or the Cahar as they're called uh-huh. so I actually I applied for a little grant from the Heritage Council of Ireland and I set about surveying mapping some of the ring forts but not just the ring forts the landscapes that went with them okay. oftentimes when we visit these usually circular enclosures we tend to look inwards yeah Whereas I was interested in looking out from those enclosures and seeing what was around them mm-hmm. uh, and what the people of the Ringfort saw uh, yeah. around them. So I started mapping some of the landscape, uh, some of these Ringfort landscapes over the course of a few years, actually. And during that, I got to know, you know, several landowners uh, and farmers down here. Uh, one of whom is Mr. John Davran, who owns Caraconnell and indeed his sons are taking over now. And I got talking to to John, who at that stage had built a little visitor centre at Mm Catherconnell. But he only had generic information about ring forts and would have loved something more specific about his particular site, Mm -hmm. as would I. So I had been mapping all these ring forts and, you know, analysing their patterns and and all of that kind of thing. And I had come up with lots of questions. Mm -hmm. So I kind of launched this research project about the ringfort landscapes in the Burren. And as many of these project, projects often develop, you know, you get to the point where I can't find any more answers without actually excavating something, without putting a spade in the ground uh, and getting some hard evidence. So I had reached that point when I met John. He was at the point where he really wanted that to happen here. So I set about including this particular part of the burn in my larger project uh, and did all the survey work. And then back in 2007, uh, myself and, and Graham Hull of, of TVAS and a group of volunteer archaeologists came along here during Heritage Week that year, at the end of the summer. And over the course of about 10 days, we excavated a small little trial trench just to get dating evidence yeah. um, and, and see what was going on. And what we found in that little trench, it was only a metre wide, got us all very excited. Um, and we knew we wanted to excavate more inside here mm-hmm. but we had no funding to do it. Uh, yes. So it took a, a few years but in 2010 we established an international field school to undertake the excavations inside Connell itself but also in its immediate uh, landscape.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, the other sites that are are part of its landscape that are everywhere you go here you're you're tripping over archaeological sites. Yeah. Um so that's how I got started here uh, at Caragonal. Uh, as I say, the field school started in 2010 and we've been back uh, every summer since, bar, you know, a couple recently t- uh, during the, the COVID pandemic.
0: It's it's fantastic. And I think it's really interesting too, as a aside, isn't it, when you keep returning to the same site, sometimes it's kind of, as you say, you might come into a particular site, do one trench, have the opportunity just to do the one trench and you go away again. And that gives you a certain insight. But this repeats... Uh, work is giving you a real sense of, of the place. So could you tell us perhaps a little bit about the monument itself? I mean, perhaps starting with Caharconnell Fort, what kind of site is it? What sort of time period are we looking at this? did Were the people living here for a very long time, do you know, or, or what kind of, could you give us an overview, if you like, yeah, of the monument?
2: Yeah.
1: Well, Caharconnell Fort or Caharconnell Cashel is the biggest monument in this particular landscape and it's the one that that people come to visit. It is a version of of what we call a a ring fort, Mm. these very common early medieval enclosed farmsteads that, as I say, you find everywhere. In the Burren, most of these cashels are relatively modest affairs, but there are a lot Mm. of them. There Mm. are several hundred of them. Um, So your typical one, housing a single farming family, maybe 20, 25 meters in diameter, uh, walls, at most I'd say maybe two meters high, mm-hmm. two meters wide, mm-hmm. um, but then you come to Carconnell here and you look at it and you go, hang on a second, yeah. this one's not like that, yeah. so this one, just to give you the, the figures, is 42 meters in diameter, yeah. its walls are three meters thick, originally probably about five meters in height. Judging by the amount of collapsed stone we had to shift yes. <laughs> over the course yeah. of, of many years. Um, so it's impressive. It's yeah. twice the size of your typical burn cashel. Yeah. So e- even if you never put a, a trowel in the ground, you'd know there was something special about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that has proven to be the case, mm-hmm. uh, I must admit. So from 2010 to 2019, we worked our way around the interior, excavating the interior of the cashel. Um And we have excavated the full, full um, interior. So we have as good idea uh, or as good knowledge as is possible of what was happening here Uh, and what we found was fascinating. I mean the earliest evidence we found actually predates the Cashel. We found a small burial mound dated to the late 6th, early 7th century A.D. and it seems to be kind of a transitional little burial mound where Christianity has arrived. Mm-hmm. and the people are transitioning to Christianity, but they're still retaining some of their pre-Christian traditions as well. Okay. Uh, and as I say, that dates to the late 6th, early 7th century. Mm-hmm. And they may even be kind of newcomers to the area. We, mm. we do one of the other castles or enclosures here was built in the 7th century, so it might, may be associated with those people coming in mm-hmm. and burying actually an older woman and some infants okay. kind of on what was then just the top of the hill. Yes. you know almost like laying claim to the to the place um as part of their their arrival.
2: Yeah.
1: But the the castle itself then is built maybe 300 years later in the late 900s. And the castle wall this big thick castle wall is built deliberately over the top of that earlier burial mound. They didn't move it a couple of meters to avoid it. Because it's not a big burial mount, It was only mm-hmm. ever maybe a metre high. Mm-hmm. Um, they could easily have avoided it. They could have just taken it out of the way altogether. Removed it. But they didn't. They have physically incorporated it into the new settlement. Okay. Um, and this brings us to an interesting part of the story. We don't have too many surviving historical records for this part of, of Ireland. But we okay. do have some. Uh-huh. And we know that up until the 10th century the people living and working in the baron are called the Kirkhamruadh but the way society worked at the time they were always subjects of the king of the province and the province was Munster Mm -hmm. and the kings of Munster at the time are called the Dal so this is Brian Brew's family and in the 900s that family are tightening their grip on their own territory there's a lot of uh, national politics going on you have the I suppose the, the, the Vikings are uh, making an appearance as well and getting yes. involved in, in politics on the island so the dalkash are as I say tightening their grip on uh, uh, on their territories including this one and the way they do it here is they send some of their own family members into the Burn and set them up as the local rulers so they're okay. imposed kings of the Kirkham rulers Yep, in the late <laughs> 900s. Um, one of those early kings that's actually mentioned is a man called Mael Shocknell. Mm-hmm. But here's the interesting thing. He had a brother called Connell. And this site is called Cahar Connell. <laughs> and the start of occupation here and the building of the site is contemporary with his dates. Okay,
2: very So
1: we may be looking at the settlement of one of these imposed kings mm-hmm. coming in And making a very visual statement on the landscape. Mm -hmm. Now, how would you make a visual statement on the landscape? You build very big walls, yes. Mm -hmm. But you also build right on top of the ancestors of the place. You incorporate them into your new settlement so that everybody knows who's in charge now. You acquire the approval of those ancestors by doing so. And this is actually a process that's mentioned in early medieval law tracts. It's something called crossing the Firtha. And the Firth was a name for one of these small earlier kind of early Christian burials. Uh-huh. And by in this case, physically crossing the actual burial mound, yeah. they're making their their statement to to everyone in the area. We're in charge now, you know. Um, and the ancestors uh, the ancestors say it's okay. Yes. You know. Yeah, yeah. So late nine hundreds they build the castle. Yes. Yeah. And they build this big site and there's a big house in the middle of it and there's a blacksmith working uh-huh. and there's a, uh, a worker in the non-ferrous metals as well, in the precious metals okay. and there's a midden and there's a cereal drying kiln and it's just really busy, Yes. you know, yes, it's yes. really busy, high status stuff going yes. on um, and settlement here continues without any gaps right through to the start of the 17th century, wow. which is really unusual for ring forts, Absolutely. for excavated ones at any rate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and we, act, we can divide that occupation into different phases because they changed some of the features and the houses inside at different times. Mm-hmm. So in the late 10th century, we'd got the big kind of circular house in the middle. Mm-hmm. In the 11th century, they replaced that with rectangular houses. Mm-hmm. And from the 11th to the 14th century, they add some new ones and some new, you know, various different features. And our final house in here dates to the 15th, 16th century. Mm-hmm. And they remodeled the entrance at that time as well. And what's really interesting is our latest radiocarbon date in here stretches into the start of the 17th century. Yeah, okay. This is where we jump back to the historical, the written records. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we know in the early 1600s it was the O'Loughlin family who owned Car Connell. We have a specific written reference to that. Mm-hmm. The O'Loughlins are descended from this Connell and male Shoknell okay. of the earlier, you know, the, of yeah. the well, of the late 10th century. Um, so in... The early 1600s, they hand Caharconnell over to the then lords of Munster, the O'Briens.
2: Yeah.
1: And the O'Briens don't hold it very long because in 1641, the English take it from them. Mm-hmm. And what they do is they give it to two Catholic brothers from Limerick mm-hmm. who had been farming in lovely lush green fields in Limerick that the English wanted for themselves mm. and took and then just sent those two brothers, the Coleman brothers, out here and gave them Connell. So, for once, we have the archaeology agreeing with the written references. Settlement ends in here either with the Allachlands leaving, Mm. which is most likely, or the O'Briens leaving. The Comans don't live in the Cashel. They live nearby. And I suppose within 100 years, a local family called the Davarans of the famous uh, medieval law school at carchar MacNaughton, which is only a few kilometres from us here, Mm -hmm. they marry into the Comans, and it's the Davarans family who still own Carchar-Connell today.
0: It's incredible um yeah. life of a place you don't often get that kind of exactly. length of continuity,
1: yeah a few families um, yeah. but yeah it makes it it makes it real
0: it know? does it yeah. does, and it gives you a kind of um even as you say the the you can kind of see in some ways outside influences as you say moving from the circular house that began it to the more rectangular ones which become fashionable after the vikings and and so on, but do you think that the I suppose the distance from the real Norman power centres let's say allowed that continuity in a way that their influence was kind of diluted by the time it reached this part of the book.
1: Absolutely I mean we know that the people living here are well you might call them Gaelic lords
0: yes you
1: know they're high status they are wealthy we know from what we found during the excavations that from The late 10th century, right through to the end, in the 16th, early 17th century, they have contact with the outside world. Yes. We have items here that have come from outside. Mm -hmm. So, for example, in the late 10th century, we have a couple of beads that probably come from the Scandinavian world. We have an amber one, Mm -hmm. and we have a particular type of glass one that's only found in various towns in Scandinavia. And at the other end of the, the scale, when we get to the 16th century, we have some English coins, we have a jeton, which is like a a trader's coin or token from Nuremberg in Germany. We have a little glass bead from Venice in the 16th century. (laughs) So they have constant contact with the outside world. Mm -hmm. And that's likely through, you know, from the 12th, 13th century onwards, through the Norman towns in Ireland. Mm -hmm. So they're trading maybe in in Galway to the north or Limerick to the south or wherever. Mm. New culture in Ireland and the the new politics. but they choose how to interact with it.
0: Yeah, yeah, they won't kind of subsume. No, they
1: have the wealth to copy it if they want it. They could have built a village, they could have built a castle, they could have you know, copied any elements of that new culture, but Mm -hmm. they don't. And I think part of that is a deliberate political statement. Mm -hmm. And part of it is practical. Mm -hmm. Why would we bother? Mm
2: -hmm.
1: We're living like our ancestors always lived. It worked fine for them, it's working fine for us you know and it's probably not until the 15th 16th century that some branch of the family th- thinks I'll give this tower house lark a go yeah. you know and yeah, they build yeah, yeah. one up the road about five kilometers from us to the north they, but true, they leave yeah. part of their family still yeah, that's you know.
0: incredible isn't it and, and like tower houses were pretty well established by that stage so they're yeah. trying to keep up with the joneses and finally gave in at that point yeah to, they probably i suppose yeah.
1: needed one maybe for trade purposes if there yeah were visitors yeah. coming yeah that's it that.
0: they would expect yeah it's very interesting and I, I suppose looking at the the particular site now so we're, we're in the largest cashel but it's not the only stone force O- on this patch of land, we, no. we've got a couple of others yeah, right we'll next do door. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about the relationship between the three? Yeah. And what is it that makes this patch of land? Because, like, we're talking, those other forts are within what, 100 meters, yeah. give or take? Um, what is it that makes this patch of land so uh, special? Is it particularly good land, or is it that this was where the power base was? So they wanted to, that had a gravity yeah. kind of thing.
1: Well, I suppose it's part of my work, ongoing work, in the burn and mapping all these ring forts, I have identified clusters where you get two or more ring forts in close proximity, Mm -hmm. along with lots of other archeological features, multi-period features, all kind of clustered together in certain areas. So certain places I think develop almost as political centers or as the equivalent of kind of an urban center, but in a rural landscape. Um, So, the various kind of services you would normally get in an urban centre in a village or a town.
2: Yeah,
1: well, yeah. where do you get them in a rural setting? Yeah, yeah. They do kind of cluster together. Okay. So I've, they're almost like the rural version of what geographers would call a central place. Yeah, You know. interesting thought. So yeah. Carreconnel is one of these clusters. Okay. And this one, I think, um, develops for a number of reasons. One is the agriculture one I mentioned earlier. Mm. We're right on the the border between the uplands uh, and the lowlands. Mm. So beside us here, we have two deeper valleys and we have the uplands to the north. So they had uh, access to both types of farming. Okay. And the other element then, uh, well, one of three, uh, another of the three elements is, we're located here today beside a crossroads. There's a north-south and an east-west road that cross right here at Mm Caharconnell. But those roads follow natural routeways through the uplands Mm -hmm. and we think have been in use since prehistoric times. Um, There's a distribution of monuments and artifacts found along them. So even though visitors today think the place is remote, in the past it had good communications, good access to the outside world. And that's proven by the objects we find here that have come from elsewhere. They were using those those routeways. So good farmland, good access to the outside world, and I think probably some link going back in time.
0: That th- th- there might involved. have been some
1: sort of ancestral link. Yeah. I have a theory about one of the the, ca- the three main castles here. It's it's got straight walls. It's unusual. Um, and when we excavated it, it w- was a little bit different to your typical castles. Same date as them, mm-hmm. dates seventh seventh to the ninth century AD. But I think that type of of cashel and there may be several dozen of them in the burn were places that offered a service Mm. a specific service that people came to the site for so they had to be able to identify it on the landscape as different to the other circular ones and you know one of those one of the services or one of the reasons why people might have had to come to a specific place in the early medieval period was to pay it's almost a rent Mm. it was called a tribute Mm -hmm. Um, so on a regular basis, people paid maybe foodstuffs, animals, products that they they made, um, and this would be their their tribute or their rent to their 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 lord, their social uh, superior. And it would seem that having a central place where you could gather all that stuff together from all the farmers in the area before transporting it on to that lord or king, mm, okay. and we know that from the, the, the literature at the time that most lords or, or kings had a specific employee who was responsible for gathering that that tribute and he was called a rachtera, um, or a steward of sorts, that was one of his, his functions. So you might have had someone like that living in a place like, like that or like this square or straight walled uh, castle. so that would provide a link with the provincial king we'll say. Okay. So if, if the had that established link with this area already mm. then they'd know about it and it would be an ideal place for them to send one of their own in to, to set them up as the local king. That's it. So there are all sorts of possibilities. You know?
0: It's very interesting and, and I think that routeway idea is really interesting too and do you know it, it's if anyone doesn't know this part of the Burren, it, it's as I said earlier, it, you're tripping over monuments and it, it's hard to believe that we've got such an important kind of early medieval kind of uh, well very multi-phase site right here and then literally across the road pretty much you have Poole-Nebron and I always wonder and and what did the people living here in say the 10th or 11th century think of something like Poole-Nebron did they you know how did that appear because it 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 was still there so it was important enough not to knock down they they don't seem to have kind of done much to it do we get anything from kind of law tracks or is there anything that kind of mentions earlier places sorry this is a completely (laughs) (laughs) tangential question to everything we've been discussing
1: I don't know about in the law tracks Hmm. but I think archaeologically all of those clusters I mentioned have some sort of prehistoric prehistoric monument in it (laughs) I think the people of the early medieval period were very concerned with their ancestry we do know that from the, the documents that survive if they don't have uh, a valid genealogy or family tree. They created them mm. to link themselves to kind of semi-mythical ancestors. Okay. Um, and here we see them doing it with our small burial mo- monument, yeah. our small burial mound. They didn't necessarily know who was in it or how old it was.
0: Just that it was an ancient and important Exactly. Place,
1: and yeah. if you want an even more in your face example of that kind of process, you have to look no further than the Boyne Valley yes. and the Great yeah. Passage Tomb of Nouth. That's right. Yeah. Where the local ruling family, Enail, or, um, built their royal settlement on top of the Neolithic Passage Tomb. Yeah. Thousands of years apart. Mm-hmm. No direct association between them, but it didn't matter. Mm-hmm. They were the ancestors of the place. Yeah. And this was the statement they were making. Yeah. And, you know, incorporating a burial mound is a very obvious thing. But we have other clues that these people were interacting with their past in different ways so for example in the straight walled cashel that we excavated we found a prehistoric stone axe deliberately placed beneath the paving of the entrance into that enclosure so they knew this was something ancient Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and maybe it was just a superstition for them or maybe there was something more to it but they deliberately put it in If you like the foundation of their 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 settlement
0: that's so interesting isn't it and and you you kind of um you see things like that from more of the 19th century and in the school's folklore collection maybe like you know people um i i you know they might find a prehistoric arrowhead and and call it like something to do with the furries or something like that i i think the, the the one that always makes me wince is that um was it um the, the Speckled Book, uh, Lower Brecker, is it? The yeah. early medieval manuscript, which a farmer, uh, farmers, generations of farmers, used to dip into a cattle trough because that kind of yeah. was seen to be beneficial for the cattle. Yeah, uh, the, the Book of the, was doing it. That, that was, was it. it, sorry, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. Book of, yeah they, they used to dip it into the water and sprinkle yeah. the water over the cattle, you know. Um, it, it's so interesting I think because we're fascinated by the past now mm-hmm. we're talking about people in the 10th century similarly and why wouldn't they be they're humans too I exactly. guess you know exactly. and we're always trying to make sense yeah. and meaning now uh,
1: at the same time in that same site where the stone axe was under the the, the entrance paving we found a second stone axe which had been reused as a whetstone just for sharpening metal objects okay so there's the opposite you know extreme
2: a, a it was just a thing.
1: practical yeah. it was a useful stone it was the right size and so they used it.
0: And do you know what? That, that's really, uh, that really humanizes it in a way, because yeah. if you met people, one of them might see an object like that and they might create quite a yeah. creative story around it, or you know, they might imbue it with kind of belief and somebody else would just be totally practical. Yeah. Like my dad would just be yeah. like, yeah, that'll be handy. <laughs> well, I, I think
1: that's the fascinating thing yeah. about the past. It's all about yeah. people. It is. I Absolutely. mean, every object we found here in Caharconnel Cashel, and we have 1900 odd of them, yeah. has a story. Yeah. I mean, there's one in particular that I always tell people about. It's a whetstone. It's a small stone used for sharpening the tips of knives or pins. And, you know, one of the students found it, brought it in to me, and I gave it a quick wash, and I turned it over. And on the back, there's a little etching. And it's a very crude etching of a sailing ship. Oh, wow. So here you have a real person. Yeah. We find whetstones all the time. Yeah. But here, someone was sharpening, we'll say, a knife they get bored. They flip over the stone, little doodle on the back, had been to the coast recent, recently, been impressed by this great sailing ship, mm-hmm. you know, and it's a real person. Yeah. And if you can put those people back into these places, that's when you really see the magic out of them.
0: Yes, absolutely. That's it. and the past is just about people. And I think sometimes we forget that, well not archaeologists as such but sometimes people can disassociate so much with the past and they'd look at it as kind of somehow alien or that they yeah. thought differently and they had a different toolkit that was the main thing and they had different perhaps beliefs and values and mm-hmm. laws but they are modern humans in the same way and they have the same capacity for for all of that the good and bad so very interesting i suppose to to get back on track a little sorry i, I am on a big tangent there but it's very interesting But um, can we talk a little bit about the field school itself uh in terms of how does it work you know and and i suppose who is sort of involved with it and how does somebody like how does a student start in the field school here the field
1: school was established in 2010 um, and I suppose I've run it since then with the landowner originally John Davran and now his son uh, Martin. Um, It's our only source of funding for for the project, for the excavation. So the students pay a fee to learn the skills of excavation which are internationally transferable. Mm -hmm. They can get academic credit from the university where I work, the University of Galway. And the fee that they pay then funds the excavation. So it's kind of a self-funding project in, in that regard. Mm-hmm. Uh, we started in 2010 and we run you know every every summer for I don't know at least six weeks. Most of our students are international. you know the vast majority do come from North America. but you know we advertise openly. We don't have any set relationship with anyone in particular, anyone is free to come. Not all of our participants are students, you know. um, Some are just people with an interest in the past. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: We've had a a few ladies from from the U.S. who come back every year, you know, and they're in there working away with your more traditional age, you know, university students. So it's open to everyone. Um, I direct kind of the project I have an assistant or associate site director as well in Dr. Noel McCarthy, uh, and we have a local man then Pat Cronin, who acts as our site supervisor mm-hmm. and depending on our, our numbers, you know we might have more staff you know from summer to summer uh, as well. Now we do limit the number of students at any one time, so we wouldn't have any more than twenty at any one time, <laughs> um, but usually maybe about fifteen or so. Yeah. Um, I think because mostly. If you have any more than that, you don't enjoy the experience. You don't get the same uh, amount of of feedback. You don't get the same amount of enjoyment out of it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, kind of a, a modest sized team is 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 better for everyone, really, yeah. uh, and it gets the work done. And you know, we work we work around the various sites in the complex from year to year, so there's there's no great pressure. There's nobody standing over us saying you have to have this finished this year yeah, there's, there's you know. be waiting to build a road exactly, right exactly. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. you can concentrate on the research and I think one of the nice things about this field school there are lots of field schools in Ireland and elsewhere of course mm. uh, but many of them are concentrate more on just the training side of things whereas here yes the training side of things is extremely important but the students or the participants who come here know that they're contributing to a really significant research project yes, as well yeah. Um, So we explained to them their place in that project and what the project means for Irish archaeology and indeed you know we've had visitors here say for example from the Royal Society of Antiquaries of Scotland Mm -hmm. who have come and learned about what we're doing Mm -hmm. and have gone home saying we want to try something like this so even just the process the methodology of it is something that can be tried elsewhere Uh, and and I suppose for us key to, to this field school is working with the people who live here, who own the place, yeah. the local community, yeah. you know, yeah. the the farming family who run this place, the Daverns, and the wider local community. It's a partnership. Yeah. You know, it's the best of both worlds for both of us, yeah. Yeah. you know. For me, this is my academic research. This is what fascinates me, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> I mean, no apologies for that. Um, but the stories that we uncover are the stories that the owners here can then share with visitors yes you know we share it with the students obviously Mm -hmm. who bring a certain amount of business here but the stories bring more people to the to this place yes and benefit the wider community you know so we try and involve the community you know whenever we can Mm -hmm. we might have you know i suppose public lectures or if we're looking for volunteers to help with things um, there's a local volunteer group here in the burn called the burn bio conservation volunteers and we work yeah. with them sometimes yeah they do um, terrific work they in do a, a variety of ways yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. they've done everything here from helping us clear vegetation from the site before we excavate to helping us with wet sieving mm. you know archaeological soils or washing b- the animal bone fragments of which we have tens of thousands mm. <laughs> so they participate in, in lots of ways um so, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a good model, I think.
0: It It is, because I suppose it's one of those things, isn't it, that yeah everyone is getting something slightly different yeah. out of it, and everyone can benefit from developing a deeper story. And I think what's really nice from, you know, I, I think a kind of a tourism perspective, and we'd be in, interested in kind of that aspect ourselves as well, is that it's that feeling, a little bit like Findolanda and places like that, that when you turn up here, and the excavations are ongoing. It might be the day that something really interesting happens. Yeah, I oh, you know, of those days. Yeah, yeah. You know,
1: I remember uh, quite clearly. I suppose in the, the final year of excavation here inside the main castle, um, the day that we found the ink pen. Mm. We found a you know a, a pen that was used by dipping it in ink, and so it obviously reflects you know literacy here. Yeah. But that pen has no equivalent anywhere. You know, it's got a a bone, hollow bone shaft, possibly from a swan, uh, with a bronze, a grooved bronze nib inserted in one end. And nothing like that has been seen before. Hmm. Um, Literacy in Ireland is normally associated with the church. But here we're in a secular site. And it came from an 11th century context. So it's really early, it's secular, and the like has never been seen before. So, you know... I'm sure the visitors who were here that day were hearing the squeals of excitement and wonder and (laughs) how do we prove this, (laughs) you know? Um, And there's been many days like that here on site and I'm sure on sites, you know, everywhere.
0: Uh, Well, it it gives a great reason to come back and to keep an interest in the site. If you're a visitor and and you know that this kind of work is going on, it's an unfolding story, it's not, doesn't have a bell jar placed over yes. it and it's static yeah. uh, you know yeah. and, we, uh, and
1: yeah. we we try to share our results so yeah. you know every season we write a report on what we found we'll put that on the car connell website yes. and we put Makes you know posts on, on on social media as we progress each year yeah. so can people stay can stay in touch yeah
0: which, which is fantastic and we'll we'll add a few of those links for sure at the uh, on the show notes as well and is there a particular kind of uh overarching research framework. So we, we we mentioned, you know, we have these uh, thoughts right here. Are you looking kind of at other types of features in both the immediate area and outside of that? Or, and what's kind of yep. the, the overall plan?
1: Yeah, I suppose when I started here way back when, I thought I'd be just looking at ring forts. Yeah, And it has turned out to be so much more than that. Yeah. yeah. Once you look at, I suppose, any landscape, you're looking at multi-period, um, features uh, and remains and the same is very true here um, in this immediate kind of cluster of activity we have an early Bronze Age house mm-hmm. that we, we excavated one year completely accidental accidental find mm-hmm. um, we have the suggestion that there was middle Bronze Age burials somewhere in the vicinity from some of the pot sherds that we found we have a barrow, a burial barrow that we haven't yet excavated, which may be Bronze Age, who knows maybe later. Um, we have a couple of boulder burials, which is uh-huh. really unusual this far north. Yeah. Um, we have some unenclosed house sites that we'd like to investigate. Then we come to the the castles. Mm-hmm. And of course we have our typical early medieval castles, but then we have the main fort here, Caraconnal itself. Which extends right through into the start of the seventeenth century, mm. you know. At which point, then we're moving kind of to vernacular architecture, yeah. uh, and you know, early modern yep. remains. So there's this continuity here. Yeah. Uh, at the moment, the only thing we haven't identified for certain is the Iron Age, but we have a couple of sites that might fill that gap. Mm. You know, but once we get around to them, um, so our project here it started with ringforts, but now it's, it's it's. it's it's looking at the wider landscape, both geographically and chronologically. Yeah. You have to see how things develop and change over time, especially here where you don't have a big Viking settlement or a big Norman settlement, no. Yeah. Where kind of the native culture and population has that, had that chance to develop kind of more more naturally. It's yeah. still interacting with those things and with the outside world, uh, as we see quite a lot. I mean, some of the artifacts here. You could find in Viking Dublin, for example, with mm-hmm. gaming pieces identical to those from Viking Dublin. We mm-hmm. have, mm-hmm. you know, um, arrowheads, iron arrowheads that are identical. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's a whole variety of things. So it's very much part of the outside world, but very much representing its own culture as well. Yeah. So, yeah, we're hoping to excavate not just the ring forts, but earlier material, material also. also
0: that's fantastic it really is and it, uh, as you say that breadth of history here is is brilliant and it kind of gives such uh, opportunities i suppose and such a kind of varied experience as well and, and very kind of understanding uh, of this part of the country uh so it's really exciting for that um so in terms of the kind of the the future with the the diver it's brilliant i think you know we talked a little about the tourism there and it's fantastic to see kind of you know we're here in kind of the post-covid world and this year it really feels like uh, although post-covid is a term i suppose that a lot of people would debate <laughs> it's still around of course but this year it feels like tourism is really back yes and you know we see coaches a lot more i was down at the Ring of kerry there at the weekend and i was very busy and seeing coaches around the Burren and such um how does i suppose kaha connell fit into the overall package, if you like, for um, the Burren in terms of the type of people come and visiting here. Are you seeing kind of the coach loads or are you more about kind of independent visitors coming along and and taking a look? Is there a mix? These
1: These days it's a mix. Mm. When they first started off, they didn't target the the buses or the coach loads at all. They were looking more towards the, I suppose, independent traveler, those in the rented car or whatever. but it has grown from there. Uh, and the business here itself has grown. It has, we obviously have a visitor center here, but, but they, you know, they offer sheepdog demonstrations. Yeah, and in the last you know, couple of years, they've actually started using our material to provide guided tours of Carraghannal Cashel. Yeah. So now we see something different When the the busloads used to come for the sheepdog demonstration, they'd be in, they'd be out on Mm. a schedule. But now they're staying and they're doing the tour of the archaeology as well. Um, So you get that element uh, of visitors, if you like. But then you also do still get the independent travellers coming. And the one thing that I always enjoy is seeing the genuine interest those people have in learning about the facts of the past. They're not coming here wanting stories about leprechauns. No. no. And they're not stupid people. No. You know, sometimes we don't give visitors enough credit. Mm-hmm. You know, they want the real stories. Yes. It's what I would want if I was going to other places in other countries. Exactly. You know. And if we can deliver those stories in a really accessible, human way, then there's no reason why everyone can't enjoy, you know. The the I
0: couldn't agree more, and and that's what it's all about, isn't it? it it's about using uh, archaeological research to tell better stories, in, in a sense. And you're so right, people now I think are used to carrying out research; they're looking for good quality information, and we're better to find it where a place is under, you know, I, I suppose a constant review, yeah. really, through this process of excavation. I think it all hangs together really, really yeah. nicely, and it creates something a bit special that would hopefully form a little bit of a model for places other, outside of here yeah. as well do you know it, it certainly gives a lot to think about.
1: And I think it, it helps break down barriers between Sorry. academia yeah. and farmers yes. and farmers and visitors yes. and everyone essentially I mean obviously these places belong
0: they do they do, and and that broad story, I think, is one that's incredibly positive, really, and especially the relationship between yourselves and and the Davran family who own the land and now having the guides here and everything else, and that's local employment and it's yep. better visitor experience and everything like that, I think it's a it's a really nice
1: a, a nice little cherry on the cake, I think is the davern family who live here mm-hmm. are descended from the medieval davern family who ran famous law school here in the Baron. Yes. Yes. So they like to think they're continuing that tradition of providing an education in the Baron with our field school. <laughs> That's very nice. So you know it's teaching archaeology now rather than law. Yeah. But it's it's you know it's carrying on a tradition you know so there there are links to the past everywhere you look.
0: Uh, absolutely, and if if this chat has been about anything, it's been about that continuity, <laughs> I suppose, with <laughs> the past. It's fantastic, Dr. Michelle Coleman. Thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Yep, my pleasure.
0: I'm here now with Amelia Gibson, and, and this is your first year at Caherganoo. Uh, Amelia, how do you find the site? What, what kind of, how's it lived up to your expectations in a way when you first looked it up?
2: Um, I found it fascinating that we're working on a site that has been worked on for so long, and mm-hmm. as of now, it's it's a tourist site, and we're continuing the work that's been going on um, with that, and the fact that. We're already finding things. Makes me very excited for the future. Next couple of weeks of the dig.
0: So I'm here with Spencer Cannon from California. And Spencer, it's your first year here. It at, is. Cannon. How do you find the excavation? And you're from California, that's right. hmm The weather's a bit different. Yeah, it definitely is. <laughs> the 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 rain has been challenging because mm. I'm just not used to it. But yeah like working in the site and with everyone here has been really amazing. It's a great experience. And what was it that first kind of um, drew you to this particular place? Were you always interested in kind of the story of Ireland or was it that you were looking for field schools in Europe or or how how was that? Um, Definitely looking for field schools like generally in Europe, but um, was definitely kind of focused my interest into more Ireland and kind of that area, like this kind of, northern european area yeah. um and then i found this site and i was like this is perfect i get to be in ireland for four weeks like this is yeah. going to be amazing so i kind of like my 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 quarter ended at school so i just flew straight over and then have been just absolutely enjoying every second of this i'm here now with jenny Sacker who has been a regular visitor and member of the team at Caha Connell. Jenny can you tell us a little bit about your background in your I, I suppose when you started coming over here first what was it about the project that excited you and like whereabouts are you from actually before we start Jenny? Yeah.
3: <laughs> uh, I'm from the states from Ohio um, and uh, my interest in archaeology has been lifelong but didn't work in it obviously Um When I had children gone, married, everything, I decided it was time to pursue my interest. Coming here, I read about this place and considered other digs, but this one just drew me because I'd been to Ireland when my daughter studied in Cork and I loved it, thought, why not? And uh, so yeah, I came, 2011 was the first time and I thought, oh, this'll be a one-off, you know. Well, wow. look at me. Here I am, twelve years older um, but it, it, and and having the reason why I keep coming back i, I enjoy it. I love the people, but the uh, the story has just grabbed a hold of me. you know how how it 's just putting things together um, i don't know I want to see it through as far as i can i I was able to do the uh, uh, the, uh, 10 years that it took to do the upper yeah. and th- that's fabulous just to know that you know we yeah. did it yeah, it's completed and <laughs> yeah. it's really thinking
0: archaeology too oh yeah, it is
3: yes yes. Yeah. yes
0: so that's it for this episode of Amplify Archaeology Podcast and I'd just like to thank Dr. Michelle Comer and the whole excavation team for the warm hospitality and for really showing me around what's a fascinating series of excavations. It's brilliant to see everything that's gone on at Cahar Connell. It's such an interesting model that I think that a lot of other places could kind of learn from and you know it's a a place where you've got archaeology happening in front of the general public and places like that always get me excited. It also made me a little bit kind of nostalgic in a way of digging it's been too long since I wielded a strowel myself so I was itching to get stuck in there myself Um, so you can keep up with all of the excavation information and all the information about visiting Caharconnell there's so much to offer here Uh, it gives a really good it's a really good place if you're passing through the borough to try to get a feel of the local archaeology. It's really informative for that. You can find out more on the website and we'll link that on our show notes. And you can also find links to all of the social media accounts where you can kind of keep up with the dig and the latest news there as well. Amplify Archaeology podcast is sponsored by Tua. That's our membership site, and that's a place where people who want to dig a little bit deeper into the stories of Ireland can find things like articles on places to visit, itineraries with road trips and days out that are packed with fantastic archaeology sites. So we've got three itineraries for the Burren alone, one for the Burren coast and one for the Burren heartlands, and that includes Cahar Connell, Nabron, all of these amazing sites nearby. And also, we've got another one for the Temple Cronon Trail, which is just a beautiful little walking trail, which isn't too far from here as well. Uh, As well as that, we've got online courses and talks and events and tours. There's lots and lots to get stuck into there. So you can find out more on our website at tour.ie. And for now, I want to thank you for joining me today and I hope you have a good day and thanks very much. And take care. Goodbye.